Welcome to the Better Boards podcast series. I'm talking with Mark Tennant about post-pandemic challenges, the role of the chair in managing investor relations. I'm Dr. Sabine Demkowski, founder and managing partner of Better Boards. We make the boards of the most ambitious organizations more effective. Our mission at Better Boards is to contribute to creating better boards. We do this by providing clients with an evidence-based approach for board evaluations and board development programs. To fulfill our mission, we give a voice to all who care about creating better boards. Every first and third Thursday of the month, I speak with those that serve boards about topics that rank high on the agenda. In this episode, I'm delighted to talk with Mark Tennant. Mark has extensive experience chairing boards in the UK, Singapore and Hong Kong. His experience ranges from small startups through PLC boards to trade bodies and charities. Mark is chairman of BMO Private Equity Trust PLC, Scottish Land and Estates, the trade body for land owning in Scotland, Centrica Pensions. He is also a non-executive director of Unit Trust of India International and a trustee of the Royal Hospital in Chelsea. Previously, he chaired the board of Scottish Financial Enterprise, the trade body for financial services in Scotland, Scottish stockbrokers Bell Laurie White Limited, Hill Samuel Unit Trusts, and Hill Samuel Private Clients Limited. Mark also has broad political experience, having stood for Westminster against Gordon Brown in 1992 and as a candidate for the Highlands and Islands in the European election of 1994. Welcome, Mark. A very warm welcome and uh, thank you so much for contributing to the Better Boards podcast series. Well, thank you for inviting me. Mark, you have been through a number of crises in your career. During the GFC, you were on the board of BMO Private Equity and you now chair this board. You were also chair of Scottish Financial Enterprise, the trade association for the financial service industry in Scotland. How does this current crisis compare to the previous ones? I'm always a little worried by economists and others that draw too close a relationship. What is happening today is very different from what happened in 2008. In 2008, it was a crisis in the banking sector. The banking sector had become illiquid. And, and when a bank becomes illiquid, it tends to become insolvent quite quickly. There's a very, very fine line for a bank between liquidity and insolvency. In this crisis, we're talking here about the complete removal of demand from the economy. And that affects different sectors. It affects the banks to an extent because clearly they have to, with government, try to mitigate some of the consequences. But the real pain is felt in the small company sector, in the catering sector, in the hospitality sector, in the airlines. And I think we've all heard, because basically what happens is that cash generation revenue stops. Now, that's yep. not happened, not only in my lifetime, but I don't think actually for a very, very long time in history, because it didn't really stop even in the second war. It just moved from one sector into the armament sector. But revenue still came in and demand still happened. This is a very, very difficult crisis to deal with and requires the banks. It requires central government. It requires the central bank, Bank of England, and the corporate sector to work together to try and find the solution as we come out. And I think the solution as to how to go in 
was, in my view, a lot easier than the solution of coming out. Were you able to apply any lesson you learned from the past in the current context? Yes, to an extent. I mean, if you take BMA private equity, one of the things that happened in 2008 was that liquidity dried up. So you suddenly find yourself in a private equity trust with a lot of commitments to invest. And you could find yourself that the realizations, the companies that you're selling, which in a sense funds the commitments that you've got, suddenly the realizations dry up. Now, in fact, in 2008, in our case, they didn't. And I don't think they did in the private equity field overall. In this case, what we're really looking at is to look at our investments and see which of them are going to survive and which sectors are going to survive. I'm glad to say that we're having done that review. It all looks as good as it could do under the circumstances. So it's a difference between a banking crisis and a crisis in the overall economy, which is what this one is. In that respect, it probably comes closer to what happened in the 70s and what happened after the war. Can you explain and elaborate a bit? Yes. In the 70s, although there was a secondary banking crisis, the problem in that case was very high inflation and companies going out of business because they found that their costs were going way, way beyond their revenue. And we suddenly found a lot of companies going bust. We found the government overborrowed, which is where we are today. Not as overborrowed as we are today, but overborrowed nevertheless. And then we found coming out of that, one of the big problems the government had was what do you, how do you deal with this debt overhang? And what we ended up with was inflation at 25% and interest rates, guilt rates at around about 15 and a half. So we may yet face that, depending on how the government is going to deal with the overhang of debt. The slight difference with the 70s is that for the most part in the 70s, that problem was largely focused on the UK. It wasn't a global problem in quite the same way as we have a global problem today, where all governments are overborrowed. And in the war, we came out completely bust. Our debt-to-GDP ratio was, was pretty much what it is today. The difference there was that, of course, we had the Marshall Plan. Now, I remain unconvinced that America is going to come to our rescue this time. Now, we entitled this podcast, The Role of the Chair in Managing Investor Relations. In this current climate, a heated debate has started about the payments of dividends. Many companies are cutting their dividends. And at BMO, you decided not to do this, despite the uncertain outlook. For the benefit of our listeners, could you discuss the decision and making process around not cutting the dividend? It was actually quite a long discussion at board level, as you can imagine. There are a number of forces at work here. The first is the physical ability to pay it. The second is the pressure that central banks and the Bank of England were putting on companies generally not to pay a dividend. But the third was the right and expectation of our shareholders to receive a dividend, which is the return on their investment. And we had to balance all of those three things. We came to the conclusion quite early on, actually, that we were able to pay the dividend, that there was enough liquidity in our corporate balance sheet to be able to do that. Secondly, we also took cognizance of the fact that we were the first private equity trust in the investment trust sector to take advantage of the change in investment trust accounting rules, which allowed investment trusts to pay income out of capital, i.e. to pay dividends out of capital growth. Now, 
this is something you have to be really careful of. And it really only applies in the private equity sector, where for the most part, our companies that we invest in don't pay dividends. They're too early stage. So the only way in which our shareholders get a return is an ever-increasing share price. And they're then subject to the discount. What we felt, and we were the leaders in this field, I think most private equity trusts have actually followed us. What we felt was that if you look at a limited partnership way of doing it, which is the sort of institutional structure, what happens there is that after five years, the LLP closes and the investors get their money back. In an investment trust, that doesn't happen. So we felt that paying capital, giving back the shareholders some of the growth that had occurred as a result of the way we invested their money was the right thing to do. And also something as we got an aging population was something which the shareholders would want. And indeed, that turned out to be the case. So there was a lot of pressure on us not to desist from paying the the dividend. And as we could pay it, we felt we should. Looking forward, it will not be a V-shape if we listen to all the economists. It will probably be a U-shaped or an L-shaped economy. It will take us longer getting out of this crisis. How confident are you that you can keep on paying the dividend? The one thing I'm certain about in this crisis is that we face uncertainty. So we will have to look. We pay it quarterly. We will have to look at each dividend payment date as to what the situation is at that time. At the moment, I see no reason for us not to continue to pay. Liquidity is there. There's plenty of spare space in the balance sheet. And actually, the dividend is a relatively small amount of cash compared with, for example, the drawdowns that we might have to fund. So it's a relatively small amount, but it will be something we will have to look at each quarter and take a decision. In the introduction, I said you had a very distinguished career. And what is so special about your career, you really have experienced firsthand various perspectives. You have sat in the chair of an investor as well as being a member of a board and the chair of a board. What, in your view, is the role of the chair in managing investor relations? I think the role of the chair is very much meshes in with the role that he has as a chairman overall, which is to lead the board in the discussion. I think it's important that if you reach a period of, of serious crisis within the company of which you are chairman, that you then start to come out of your boardroom and start to talk to investors directly as the chairman. And certainly that's something we do at the AGM, although this year we couldn't hold an AGM for obvious reasons. We're hoping to hold some kind of meeting later in the year. But talking to investors at the AGM is actually very important. So what do you think are the key challenges for chairs in post-pandemic times? Can you maybe summarize what really matters now? I'm not sure that what really matters now is a lot different for a chairman than what mattered before. The only caveat I put on that is the importance of keeping the board's eye on the liquidity situation. But a board chair's role is to lead, to make sure he's formed or she's formed team. And that's really important. To get the board working together is critical, I believe, in the success of a company. And that doesn't mean to say that you have groupthink, far from it. Mm. And in fact, as soon as you get to that stage, you need to review the membership of the board. But it does mean that you are able to get to a solution for a problem and everybody pulls together. 
once they've all had their say and once you've had the debate. So forming a team for me for a chairman is absolutely critical. The third thing that's critical for a chairman, and this will be probably more important as we come out of this crisis, is actually the makeup of the board. Because you need to have on a board a very wide spectrum of experience. Because things can come at you from all sorts of places and all sorts of areas of the market. And you need to have people who've got experience in all those areas. So if you look at the board as a whole and aggregate it, they have a huge wide knowledge. And you said I had an illustrious career. I think you were being over generous. But one of the great advantages I've had is that I think I've done every job in the city with the exception of retail banking. So I have a very, very broad experience of right the way through from pensions to global custody to fund management to equipment leasing. I've done all those. I get very often asked, particularly by non-executive directors, how can I best support my chair? So how can board colleagues best support you in managing investor relations? I'm not sure that the investor relations piece, I think we're getting too hung up on investor relations here. It's a question really of how the power board member and non-executive director can support the chair just generally. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a number of things here. The first is to make sure that if you have an opinion about something, that the chair knows about it and understands your opinion. Secondly, that when you come to debate and you may be out of line with the rest of the board, that you debate constructively. And if you debate well, you may well change some of the board's minds. And that might be a good thing. And that's one of the good things of having a diverse directorship. I think if you want to focus purely on investor relations, the important thing is that the board keeps the chair facing the investors and keeps his mind on that and doesn't allow it to get totally embroiled in liquidity, the underlying investments and all the other things, although he needs to do that too. I always think that... um, one thing, one of the things that a board has to think about is, if I take this decision, what's the effect on my investors? Thank you so much. Now, you stress the importance that the board is a team. What role do board evaluations play for you in helping a board to rise to the challenges and forming a team? There are two sides to that question. One is the question of board recruitment and board refreshment, which is exceptionally important. and the chair has a, a duty to ensure that all the directors are playing their part and that all the directors are functioning 100%. Sometimes they end up having too many directorships. They're not quite on the button when they come to meetings because they've been reading too much about other things. At that point, you probably have to say to the board member, look, are you quite sure you have the time? Are you quite sure you want to go on doing it? And to refresh the board. And the key area here is before you refresh the board, you need to do a skills audit. So you need to look at the skills that the board have and try to fill the holes. So I think that's an important part. I think when it comes to the board as a whole, when you get to a situation where there is a contentious issue, which happens and will happen more as we go into this crisis, you need to understand where each member of the board is coming from and try to work out what the solution is that you think you'd like to arrive at and which you think is possible. And then so move the board debate along that line. If you don't do that, if you don't have a solution in mind, therefore a goal, you will end up all over the place and probably end up with a compromise. Whereas a solution may be a compromise, a compromise is not necessarily a solution. Fantastic, Mark. 
Brilliant. Thank you ever so much for your wise words. I think there's a lot our listeners can get out of it. Good. Thank I you will. so much, Mark. Okay, not at all, Sabine. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Mark, for contributing to the Better Boards podcast series. How can we help you and your board? We at Better Boards are delighted to hear from you. If you would like to learn more about how we can empower you to conduct internally a rigorous board evaluation, contact us. You can best reach us on info at better-boards.com. Thank you for tuning in and we are looking forward to seeing you, hearing you again.